Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their games. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. One week ago, Thomas Monaghan was announced as the CEO of Hydric Struggles, one of the preeminent global executive search, leadership development, and management consulting company. Previously, he served as chief executive officer and president of DeVry University, where he is currently vice chairman. He previously served as chief executive officer of the corporate executive board, now part of Gartner, which acquired it for $2.6 billion. He also served as chairman of ProKarma, and is currently a board member of TransUnion. Early in his career, he was a consultant at Deloitte and Anderson. Tom's career has been spent engaging, leading, and governing organizations that leverage innovative technology, robust data, and exceptional people to inflect business performance. I had the pleasure of serving with Tom on the board of trustees of the Nature Conservancy. He is a great friend. He is one of the most thoughtful and strategic business people I have ever come across. He started his professional journey in the family business, a carnival. Yes, a carnival. This episode segment about the future of higher education is a terrific distillation of the dynamics affecting the sector. Enjoy the conversation. Tom Monahan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Um, you as listeners heard uh, in your bio just previous, um, you've had quite a uh, interesting squiggly line orthogonal career but you know we all start our lives somewhere and uh tom i want to ask you about a little bit about your beginnings your origins and kind of maybe some lessons you learned as a kind of as a kid as a young person that you still take to this day sure i'll, I'll share two things about my my growing up one is i'm, I'm a kind of boston irish kid from cent central casting right sort of grew up in boston went to high school in boston went to college in Sort of, yeah. I, I, I'm. I can get you anywhere on Boston's red line. Uh, <laughs> I've been up and I can't. I can't get you on even any other lines. But that's my one. Um, yeah, I had great parents, fantastic opportunities. Uh, you know, did the Catholic school thing all the way through, and then just mm -hmm. had really fantastic opportunities. The most interesting thing about my upbringing, and, and uh, like a thing I call back on to this day, is. Uh, mm -hmm. My grandparents' business, it's still still in the family. My my uh uh my cousin runs it, my my uncle ran it before him, uh is a is a carnival. And when I tell people that they, they it, it prompts a number of jokes like what were you uh, were you an attraction or <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm holding I'm holding myself right now because I just want to ask you all kinds of questions, but go on. Yeah, but there, there are two things, two, a couple things are really interesting about a carnival. Um, it, and so I spent a lot of time in it, and, and it was a really, a lot of good memories came out of it. But two, two in particular really stood out for me. One is you really get close to different business models in a carnival. Like carnival has two very different business models side by side, games and rides. And you're sort of like, wow, those, but a game is more like a services business. A ride is more like a, a capital intensive business. So you start to learn a lot of business stuff at a very young age. The second thing I learned, and I, and I, I was reflecting back on this, is um, how eager most people are to teach you their job, you know, to tell you about what they're working on, you know, because you're, 
you're there, you're a kid, you're around, like going up to the person who's best at something and saying, Hey, you, you know, you're, you're the best you're the best person attracting people to play your game but the willingness and in, in, in the natural inclination of human beings to teach each other is something i learned there um it's a combination mm-hmm. of pride it's a combination of enthusiasm it's a combination of desire to be a mentor but i really saw that uh spending all my time in that all the all the time i did in that business and all the different people who took time to teach me about what they were doing and how that gave me a perspective more broadly on the business I, I just love this story so much, Tom, because, you know, th- in the show, we have a lot of people like you that have done just amazing things throughout their life, but they all have these regular uh, beginnings, right? Yours is pretty singular, like, you know, learning how to do cotton candy one day and then the those, ring bo- the, those rings in the bottles, that's got to be a scam because it's impossible to do it. Um, yeah. You know, you can safely assume it's not a scam because when you're working one of the games, (laughs) the very first thing someone will come up to you and say is, show me it works. You know, this kind of combination, it's interesting segue that you combine this amazing kind of job training when you were a kid doing something inside your family. So there's entrepreneurship, there's learning that a ride takes a lot of investment up front and hopefully people ride it so you can absorb the cost. Like it's an incredible learning. And then... The fact that you're actually talking to people all the time, we're going to skip a bunch of stuff in your career, but I want to talk about when you ended up running a corporate executive board, which got acquired by Gartner. And I think one of your colleagues, uh, another incredible individual who now happens to be the chief of staff of the White House, so not, not a small job. So tell me a little bit about, so you learned a bunch of stuff when you were a kid important stuff that you take to this day but then you're like running now like thousands of people advising ceos that are in you know manage a million people whatever like what's leadership like you've seen a lot of leaders what do you think makes for a good leader a couple of things uh, i'd say you know the the core job of a leader as i've gone organization to organization is what, what i'll say discerning a shared important mission figuring out what you know, the people you're leading collectively want to and can achieve. Getting everyone aligned against something really important that they can only do by performing at their best and by performing together. So discerning an ambitious shared mission is I think, the first job of a leader. And, and I use the phrase discerning because I'll drop to the second point. Curiosity is so important to leadership. And maybe it was that formative experience of when I asked people what they were working on, they told me and they went into great detail. Will Rogers has a famous quote where he said, it, it ain't the things we don't know that get us in trouble. It's the things we know that just ain't so. So I've really tried to take, wow. that, to heart, to take that to heart and say, let me presume I don't know. Let me just ask, you know, what's hard right now? And I think it's both good for a leader to operate, though. I also know it's really helpful in Mm-hmm. Uh, designing a value proposition. You know, one thing we did really well at CEB was continually ask our uh, member customers and clients, you know, what's hard? Like, help me understand what's important there. Just, I, I think we stayed curious and that let us get to the real nugget of what problems they were trying to solve. And then we could take them back and, you know, build the product to, so- to solve those problems. I, I've really tried... I think the best leaders, the people I emulate, 
stay stay relentlessly curious and never lose that that curiosity bug to just ask to stop and presume they don't know and ask another question and learn a little more i'll boil it down to an equation listening is greater than talking when it comes to leadership you do a lot more listening than talking because you're trying to distill all of these things into um I guess, bite-sized, communicable, important things. And then it's an interesting way you put it, kind of finding alignment and common purpose is very hard to do, right? Because it's not just, here's the goal. It's like you can achieve it so many different ways. And I want to double click on, on one thing in life. Like if you were to count how many things you, how many answers you have and how many questions you have, you probably have a lot more questions than answers, which kind of boils down to humility. So tell me a little bit about, and it sound, obviously sounds like you lead this way. Um, why is humility important in a job, let's say in a CEO, when he's supposed to be this, he or she is supposed to be this assertive, like follow me. Uh, let's go rah rah. But in reality, that's not it. That's not it, right? Like, what's your sense on that? It's really interesting. One of the, um, especially as companies scale, I've noticed that the every one of your direct reports knows more about what they're doing than you can possibly know. Like, if you're head of um, uh, if you're head of, if you're general, if, if you're smarter about the law than your general counsel, you're going to go to jail. Mm -hmm. And so the humility to say, I, I have surrounded myself with people who have, by definition, much more expertise in their area than I have. And they also have much more expertise in their respective areas than each other have. Mm -hmm. right? And so your job as a leader, I think, is to just keep asking questions first to educate yourself secondly sometimes those questions do lead to some sort of mutual understanding thirdly mm -hmm. um you know it rounds out your understanding of decisions it really does help and i like to think it also inspires people to come to work which is if if you're working in an environment where mm -hmm. your mastery of a of a uh you're you're respected for your mastery you're respected for what you know your advice is taken seriously. Your perspective is taken seriously. Doesn't mean you always get what you want, but you feel heard. Um, I, I think it's really, um, it's funny. The last thing I did was just running um, uh, running DeVry. Mm -hmm. uh, I had never been in higher ed or education anywhere before. And I, I really did hammer home the point. I really don't know anything. And that I can prove that I know nothing. <laughs> Therefore, I need you all to you know bring your best thinking. I can't. I, I, I if if I'm going to make decisions, I'm going to have to make them based on the collective expertise of this room, not on any set of experiences I have. I share something interesting with you, and that is that when I served in government, all I knew about making laws was what I learned in Schoolhouse Rock, meaning <laughs> absolutely nothing. A bill becomes a law and it walks around in little state. You remember that little? Uh, yeah, I'm just a bill. I'm only a bill. I'm just a bill. I'm just a bill. Um, and that showing vulnerability, but not in a fake way, like actually really asking for advice and perspective, that actually creates this connected tissue 
in a team that I'm valued. And there, there's much more to this that that I want to unspool. But you brought up DeVry, mm -hmm. which you ran for several, a good number of years. And I know you've sat on many corporate boards. I think today you sit in, on the board of TransUnion. But I want to kind of double click on DeVry doing an executive fellowship, which is kind of this professor low in calories. And one of the classes I attended was literally about the disruption of HBS. Is it sustainable model, this expensive, residential, highly branded, you know, most of the money here is made publishing, which is sold to other schools, very integrated model. And then the discussion in the case was amazing. And your ex-colleague was just an incredible professor, but it, led, it leads me to kind of ask you, so there's all these forces either trying to break apart that, um, that integrated model, not necessarily in business, kind of business graduate degree education, but just generally lack of accessibility. And is a degree worth anything anymore? Because you can really start coding and make a hundred grand as a 19 year old. So, I mean, you sat in a pretty interesting seat running one of these uh, universities, very 30,000 foot, because I'm sure you have all kinds of thoughts. Where do you think this goes? And what do you see here? For the future of you know higher ed in the United States and the world, I, you know it's funny, and and this will sound g given where you and I have spent the bulk of our careers, kind of in mm -hmm. uh, growth businesses, innovative businesses, et cetera. This will sound like the least interesting comment you'll ever hear, but one of the mistakes uh, broadly at a macro level, um, one of the mistakes that I, I see the education sector broadly mm -hmm. engaging higher ed in particular is uh in big simple terms is probably one of the least segmented markets i've ever seen um there are just in big round numbers there are probably four thousand uh higher education post-secondary institutions in the u.s it's a lot right so it's a big big market four thousand different entities and they all there's very little segmentation around uh for, for a market of that size, you'd expect to say, well, this is the, per the this is the institution that serves people who've been out of the workforce who are coming back in. This is the institution who serves, you know, people who are absolutely certain they know what they want to do when they're 18. And so they're, you know, they're going to compress their undergraduate sprint to get there in three years versus four. This is the institution that knows um, that is going to help people discover, you know, it's a it's a hugely diverse set of learner markets on the end, and yet everyone. Um, uh, I, I I end up a kid with my friends who went to University of Michigan. I say everyone everyone wants to be the University of Michigan, and by that I mean, um, uh, yeah, it, Michigan's probably the prototypical. And I there are a yeah. number of institutions, but prototypical school that's good at pretty much everything, right? Mm -hmm. you know, they have great arts programs and a great hockey team <laughs> they have like a great football team, yeah, football football, team yeah, and yeah. a great business school like and, and and good on them right they've been able to build that and we look even 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 where you're seeing today harvard yeah we we can't quite you know we're good at a lot but we don't quite catch up with michigan and football mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> yeah uh, you know so but and i think that's probably an okay aspiration for a subset but i'm shocked that more institutions and more entities don't say rather than trying to disrupt all of higher ed, we're going to focus on this narrow set of students and student ambitions, not just students, but what, you know, 
this group of people and the use case they're going to education for. Well, and I think DeVry will end up doing a pretty good job of saying, you know, let's let's do, let's be really focused on who we serve and let's be really focused on what ambition we're helping them unlock. And I think that's where, I think that's where the innovation in higher ed is going to come from is if people say, we don't need to be all things for all people. There are, you know, just being simple, there are probably 35 million Americans who have some college, but no degree. That's a, you know, that market could be resegmented 25 times and you still have multiple million person markets there. Um, and it's just not, it, it, in the sectors we grew up in, that's kind of first things first. Who, who, who are we choosing to serve? And then what are we doing for them? In education, there's a little more of all things to all people that I think we need to get past. In the liberal liberal arts degrees, which are kind of this all-encompassing, full pedagogical, four-year experience, like you, you're really talking about the customer need, right? Like, and and the customer need is driven by the economy and the jobs that are available. And it's really interesting that this miss this interesting mismatch. There's also a market pricing. The market clearing price of education has just keeps skyrocketing. It's you know like healthcare, like it doesn't act like a normal. You know, I know you talk economics, like a supply and demand curve. It's kind of like this weird transfer price thing that happened. It's it just we can go on for days and days. It's just remarkable the the level of uh, of impact you've had on so many people in so many wearing so many so many kind of hats. And I really appreciate you giving us your thoughts. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's great. It's always great to catch up, and it's kind of fun to get it uh, get it on uh, uh, in audio format for once. So we always have good conversations. This one just happens to be recorded. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit topofthegame-thepod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening.